Are we done an hour and a half? I still have a lot to talk to you about. How you oh, doing? Go ahead, yeah. Are you cool for time and stuff? Because yeah, I can go for a while. I'm okay. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is June 22nd, 2008, and this week we have the second installment of our marathon conversation with Bill Burns of UFO Hunters, UFO Magazine, and co-author of The Day After Roswell. If you missed out on last week's episode, you definitely want to go back and pick that one up. I can honestly say we probably got more feedback for that episode than we have in quite some time. For those of you who already caught part one, if you thought that was something, wait till you hear part two. This is an ultra-hot edition of BOA Audio that is definitely going to generate a lot of buzz in the online esoteric world. Here in part two, we're going to focus on the field of ufology in general, some big-picture questions and a host of side roads and tangents. We're going to find out if Bill ever gets burned out on UFOs, his theories on what is behind the phenomena and how much the government really knows about flying saucers, plus his thoughts on the disclosure movement and exopolitics. We're going to smash the fourth wall of the program as we talk about the online esoteric scene and the podcast genre. Bill had a passionate post at the UFO Magazine blog about some of his issues with the podcasting scene, and we're really going to flesh out that blog post and discuss what Bill doesn't like about the podcast scene right now and the troubling trend of gatekeepers in ufology. We're also going to discuss staple BOA audio issues like women in ufology and young people in ufology, plus, of course, tons and tons more. Much like part one, this episode is richly detailed. I just sit back and let Bill take as much time as he wants to answer the questions, and we really get some tremendous gems. As I said at the beginning, it is an ultra, ultra hot edition of BOA Audio, no holds barred with Bill Burns, as we cover a plethora of topics in the UFO scene today. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Burns, let me give you a little bit of background on him. William J. Burns is a New York Times bestselling author, a magazine publisher, and a New York literary publishing agent who has written and edited over 25 books and encyclopedias in the fields of human behavior, true crime, current affairs, history, psychology, business, computing, and the paranormal. As publisher of the nationally distributed UFO magazine, editor of the UFO Encyclopedia published by Pocket Books, and co-author with George Norrie of A Worker in the Light, Dr. Burns has added to his list of publications in the UFO paranormal field which include The Day After Roswell, Unsolved UFO Mysteries, and The Haunting of the Presidents. He was frequently featured on the UFO Files on the History Channel and is one of the stars of the new program UFO Hunters, also on the History Channel, presently taping its second season to premiere in September. His website is www.ufomag.com, 
ufomag.com. Definitely want to check that out. A tremendous blog there that is actually run by BOA's own Leslie. She's done some outstanding work there, bringing in a variety of voices to the UFO Mag website. Definitely want to check it out, ufomag.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 16, 2008. Bill Burns, Part 2, talking about the world of ufology on BOA Audio, Season 3. This one's sort of an overarching question, although I have a feeling maybe it's it's become more of an issue, I guess, for you now that you're sort of synonymous with the UFO scene and everything, and it's become more and more name, uh, your name's become more and more bigger. And that's just, do you ever get burned out on this whole UFO uh, phenomenon and everything, or just tired of hearing people's UFO stories? Because I get that sometimes, you know, where I'm out somewhere and they find out I'm involved with this, and the next thing I know I'm hearing their UFO story, and it's like, all right, listen, you're like the thousandth UFO story I've heard, pal. Like, i got to get my cigarettes and get out of the store. So do you ever get burned out or, or just, you know, just sort of like, you know, enough already with the UFOs? Well, what's so funny is kind of where my literary stuff goes as a book writer is into the I've got to take like 10 steps back. What I like are stories about people who have had extraordinary experiences, whether it's UFOs or any ghosts, yeah. you know, criminals. I mean, it's really what it is. I love stories about people who've been to the edge, looked over the edge, looked into the horror of what's over the edge or the majesty of what's over the edge and have come back to tell their story. Okay, that's first of all. So it was a per- I, I like that. Yeah. And um, so in that field of endeavor, I've written books about true crime, about basically Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy, um, because I like stories. Because for me, when you buy a used, older, much older, like 30-year-old, actually not anymore, they stopped selling them in 73, but the old 1960s, 50s, whatever, VW Beatles. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of stuff you can't do if you're not a mechanic, okay? Mm-hmm. But there's stuff you can do. And here's what you can do. You can um, roll your VW up to a wall, put it in first, and slowly let the clutch out. At what point does the clutch stall the car? If it's all the way at the top, there's a problem with the clutch. Your clutch is slipping. Yeah. That's the way to test the clutch. That's the poor man's way of doing a clutch test. Mm-hmm. You're buying a car with a stick shift, right? Yeah. Start the car in second. Don't start the car in first. Start it in second and run the engine. How does the engine lug in a low gear? If you feel like the car is going to explode, you got a problem. If it's just rough riding, okay, Yeah. Um, pretty good, okay? Um, you want to test the brakes? Put the parking brake on and run the car. You'll test the clutch and the brakes at the same time. Okay, these are the ways to test it. You test things out to see how true they are, not by going and taking a middle-of-the-road approach. I'm going to take a test drive around the block. No, you stress it and get to the edge. In the old, old days before digital photography, there were things called enlargers, optical enlargers. And how did you test the lens on an enlarger to see if you were getting a good enlarger? Would you go to the center of a negative and blow that up? Of course not. Every enlarger blows up the center of a negative. You go to the field where there's the most distortion. Where is it? At the edge. That's where the camera distorts things, around the edge of the lens. Blow that up. How much distortion you get tells you the quality of the enlarger lenses. Same thing. You want to talk about the human condition? 
interview a serial killer, probably the most aberrant form of human being on the planet, that aberrant belief system will tell you a lot about the human condition. I can go on and on about this, but the point is that's what paranormal stories are to me. <clears throat> so for me, it's not the UFOs. And it's not the near-death experience or the out-of-body experience. It is what does that person's experience say about the human experience. So that's why I don't get tired of it. There you go. Okay. Now we kind of want to just dive into some big picture sort of stuff on the UFO phenomenon because you've been, you've been sort of in the mix here for quite a while. To start it out, it's sort of a generic question, but uh, I, I'm sure that you have a point of view on the whole thing. And what's your take on what you think is going on here with the UFO phenomenon? What, what's, your, what's your theory if you, if you have one? Well, I've got a whole bunch of theories. I mean, so it's not just one. I mean, basically, the more they stretch from the more mundane to the more exotic. But, but the basic thing is, nobody really knows in the government anyway what it's all about. I mean, there's no kind of UFOs are. I, I know, I know people who are in the UFO, call it um, the special access group. I, mean, I know who they are. Okay. Um, some of them basically have been on camera saying that, right? I mean, in the NASA episode, John Schusler, founder of MUFON, said he was in, he had special access clearance, but no, we can't talk about it because he'd be killed. I mean, that's actually a quote from the show, so I'm not blowing John Schusler's secret. It's in the show. Okay. He says it on air. Uh, there are others whose name I can't use, whose name I, I, I won't use because why shut them down? But yeah, there is a special access group. There's a special access group inside the Pentagon and the DOD that are in this kind of UFO project. Is it Majestic 12? I don't even know that it has a name. But yeah, so they're in it. What do they know? All they know is where the UFO is and what the level of experimentation is on it and what the policies may be with respect to it, and that's it. The Pentagon officially denies the existence of UFOs. So, so that's on the more mundane level. Uh, George Hoover uh, of the Navy, who b before he died, said that among the military, the existence of UFOs was kind of commonplace. Really, I mean, everybody who was in that group, that special access group, knew about UFOs. Um, it's just a matter of um, they didn't take it that serious. I mean, they didn't. They they weren't falling on the floor in awe over them. They were much bigger secrets, and that's where it gets more exotic. Um, there are UFO cases that would stun your mind. Nobody pretty much knows about them. It's research that I do pretty much privately. I wouldn't bring it up in UFO hunters because there's nothing to sh there's nothing to shoot. UFO hunters is about what can go on camera, yeah. not can not what you can find from people telling stories. So there are UFO cases that really, without stuff going on camera, you're just not going to know about. Um, same thing with articles in the magazine. Why kind of blow the whistle on a story that's still under investigation? But there are some stories that are actually quite quite stunning, and um, that are probably true. Uh, and but why engender the the fight? I mean, when you publish a story, ten people are going to say it's a hoax. Other people are going to say, "Hey, it's my story. Why are you doing it? I hate your guts." And so it's not worth it. So you basically do your own quiet research. So yeah, there are stories that are more exotic that would really be pretty stunning. So that's on the mundane level inside the government. Um, where the UFOs are? Is there an Area 51 where there's a UFO? Probably. I, tr I tend to trust Bob Lazar's story of his being of seeing a reverse engineered UFOs. Yes, there was a UFO either at Norton or Edwards. Uh, this person did see it in a hangar. I've got him on tape um, talking about he was tricked by some officers who told him to go clean a hangar up. And he did, and that's when he saw this disc floating about 10 feet above in a hangar. <laughs> Do we have anti-gravity? Yes, I saw it myself through a telescope in Las Vegas. 
Um, where is a UFO? Probably at Eglin Air Force Base uh, in, in a cryogenic chamber underground. That's their big um, storage facility for a cryogenic. It's where they test, by the way, um, Arctic stuff. So that's why they have the cryogenic chamber. It's mm-hmm. got four UFOs, but that's where it is. Is there stuff in private industry? Absolutely. They've been working on it for a while. That's why the whole Kelly Johnson story is so interesting. So uh, Kelly Johnson at Lockheed. So, um, yeah, they exist. We have them. Can't figure out the propulsion system. Uh, of course, I was probably right about the propulsion system that it was somehow tied into the mentalics of the android creatures. Those were the greys who were navigating it and were just coming up on getting that um, brain <clears throat> machine interface. It's probably a few years away, but um, you know where thoughts can trigger things. Are you on the ETH side of the fence? I guess you could say you pretty much. Uh, do you have a, a theory on where where these are all? You know, the source. I guess you'd say of the UFOs. I kind of have theories about it, yeah. I mean, um, because I've been told by various folks uh, where they are um, and what what it's all about. So, um, yeah, I I do have theories. And they get pretty exotic. I mean, um, they they really – actually, I'm doing – Day After Roswell is going to be a movie. And kind of I managed to work one of those theories into the movie. I'm writing it with Philippe Mora, who wrote the movie Communion with Whitley Strieber. And we're co-producing. So um, I think a lot of those theories are going to be in that. But um, really, uh, the person who told me these theories was um, uh, George Hoover of the Navy. George Hoover, by the way, is a fascinating guy. He's dead. Um, he was at in the South Pacific in the weeks before Pearl Harbor and saw the Japanese fleet and was told to keep his mouth shut, as was everybody else on the ship who was an officer. That's interesting, mm-hmm. which means we sat for Pearl Harbor. It was getting us, it, it, it got us into World War II. Roosevelt had to do two things, get us into World War II, because he knew that only we could defeat the Germans, and Jap- uh, can defeat the Germans, but he couldn't get the Senate to declare war on Germany. They refused, and Roosevelt was adamant that we that we were the only power on earth that could have stopped the Germans. Ultimately, they would have worn the British down just through attrition. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and uh, of course, he didn't know that in '42 Hitler would be so stupid as to invade the Soviet Union. But I mean, he would have lost anyway. But anyway, in '41 we didn't. In '40 we didn't know that. So um, we so and the only way to get us into World War II was have Germany declare war on us, and that was the whole point of Pearl Harbor. We lose battleships that were old, keep the aircraft carriers because they were the ones that would project our air power across, uh, project our power across the Pacific. We knew the Japanese didn't have the fuel resources to pursue a war because we'd bomb them in Burma in the 1930s. That was the whole uh, Claire Chenault and the Flying Tigers. We fought a war against the Japanese in China in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Bombed them, bombed the Burma Road so the Japanese couldn't get to the oil. Kept them out of Southeast Asia so they couldn't get the oil in the South China Sea. So we knew the Japanese were only uh, they could launch an attack and that was it. And that was the case. We, we it was a bloodbath for the next few years but we knew they didn't have the resources. We, um, and when um, I know this is a diversion, but when um, Field Marshal Montgomery broke Pat, uh, broke um, Rommel's army at El Alamein and kept them from advancing east of the Suez to the oil fields, 
we knew that the Germans couldn't prosecute a war, and Hitler obliged us by using his petroleum reserves to fight the Soviets in Arctic weather, and that destroyed him, but we had to get into the war, so we basically waited for the attack on Pearl Harbor, declared war on Japan, Hitler declared war on us, so much for Pat Buchanan's theory, and that was the end of that. We, we were in World War II, which satisfied the other issue was how do you get, how do you um, get out of a depression? Spend, spend, spend. Yeah. It boosted our manufacturing. We sold war bonds. We had every movie star out there selling war bonds, and that got us out of the 1930s depression. Roosevelt was a genius. In any event, um, this guy, Hoover, saw the Japanese fleet. He later went on to be Walt Disney's personal advisor for the old Man in Space episodes on, on um, the Disney World, right? Mm -hmm. When Disney did a show in the 50s. He invented the um, homing torpedo, the heads-up display in cockpits, a lot of stuff for submarines. He was a genius, right? That was George Hoover. George Hoover, this is in the records, George Hoover investigated the Philadelphia experiment for the Office of Naval Intelligence in the 1950s after people were screaming, did the Navy time travel? No, it was just basically they were degaussing ships in preparation for the attack on Japanese home waters, which is what he wrote, but he got into the UFO business and yeah. the time travel business by doing that. Ivan T. The famous Ivan T. Sanderson wrote about him in a book that was not published. I have the manuscript that was in George Hoover's. It was George Hoover's notes in the Morris K. Jessup book about the Philadelphia Experiment that were the famous conspiratorial notes, had the book, gave it back to his son, Xeroxed it, have the book. Yeah. I mean, so that was Hoover. He told us that he was the Corso of the Navy. And he said, it's not about the UFOs. They've been around for, we've known about it ever since before World War II. It was about what was in the UFOs, why they were in the UFOs, and where the UFOs come from. And the big secret was, we are the aliens. We are the ETs. Human beings, ETs. Neanderthals, not ETs. Human beings, ETs that there's a disconnect between human evolution and primate evolution. That's a big disconnect. And he's saying we can force the issue, we can paper it over with DNA, we can paper it over with a lot of arguments. Fact is, we are they. Yeah, so it's like the ancient astronaut type theory. But worse. Uh, Crick and Watson, the founders, the developers, the people who discovered double helix, mm -hmm. they believed in panspermia. Uh, Kerry Mullis, whose work with um, uh, polymerase DNA, I think it's polymer, I'm not sure the exact term, to duplicate DNA, make basically a photocopy of DNA that would stand up in court, which is how Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, was convicted. This is how all this ties together, was convicted. He said that he got that information from an alien contact. So um, Hoover said, yeah, they're with us. Alien contact is real. It's been happening for thousands of years, and uh, the military knows about it. But the absolute deadly fear is that not only are they us, are they we, mm -hmm. we are they, but that we've got a lot of the same abilities that they have, only we don't know what we know, and therefore are very easily led and compliant by all kinds of – it's not just – THX-1138, this George Lucas, you know, um, everybody looks like he's wearing a jumpsuit. It's not just that, although it's close to it. It's basically how do you maintain control? Yeah. 
Well, it's a control issue. Governments want control. He said he's not a radical. He's not a commie. Commies are actually worse. He said he's not that. He just is saying that you've got to control mass societies. That's what we learned at the beginning of the 20th century. This is long before there was a UFO issue, that you've got to control mass societies. You've got to control people. They'll eat each other up. Yeah. We don't know what we know. We're not ready. We are the ancient Hebrews in the desert who still have a slave mentality because they will not confront the Philistines over in the Promised Land. So we had to go for another 40 years in the desert, mm -hmm. right, until we got our brains around the fact that we were no longer slaves. Yeah. That's what the Old Testament tells us. Well, what Hoover says is so much of the Old Testament is about UFOs. He says, go back there. You, you Basically, you read it literally. Don't try to interpret it. Just read it, right? Yeah. So you read it, and the first thing you read is Adam and Eve were on the earth, but there were giants in the earth. Well, who were the giants in the earth that were there before Adam and Eve? I don't get it. Yeah. Right? I mean, so he goes through the Bible, through Genesis, and he's telling us the story's all here. There was hybridization of the species going on. The sons of Adam and Eve married the daughters of men. Who are the men that they're married? Yeah. Right? Who are the Nephilim? So, I mean, Hoover was a very religious person. And he read the Bible basically word for word. And he said, you don't need a ufologist to tell you what's true. It's in the Bible. Yeah. So, um... He said you can have all kinds of interpretation. He said, look, depending on who you talk to, talk to a Protestant, talk to a Catholic, talk to a Jew, talk to a this, talk to a that, you'll get a different interpretation of, of, of how the earth began. Essentially, it's the same thing, but different interpretations. So the fact is, Hoover said, in reality, what we now know is that we, were, is that we are the aliens. We are the ETs. We are extraterrestrial. We have the same powers. What are the same powers? Well... Look at the movie, The Law of Attraction. In fact, read my book, Worker in the Light. Don't bother with The Law of Attraction. <laughs> read Worker in the Light. I wrote with George Nori. Yep. There you go. It's in that book. Okay? Um, everything you need to know about the powers you have are in that book. You can see the future. You can intuit the thoughts of other others. You can do out-of-body experiences. You can, you can do all the things. You can lucid dream. Dreaming is another reality. It's not just that you're asleep. It's just another reality. In that reality, you will see the future. You will get voices from the future. You will, I mean, the Greeks had it right. So um, that's what Hoover was telling us. And what about the idea that's been around for a while and sort of keeps coming up again and again, you know, and some people believe it and some don't, that uh, that the government, the U.S. government, has some sort of dealings with the ETs? Do you think it's uh, that sort of situation? Or I think, no, I, 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 I think on some levels, it's not as big as you think. It's not like there's the ET department in the Pentagon. Yeah. But I think that on some levels that there have been dealings, whether it's true or not. Okay, here's the one story that really... Again, this is a Corso story. Okay. That when he was at Red Canyon, which was the Army missile side of White Sands in New Mexico, um, he was told at certain points to turn his radars off. Mm -hmm. Now, according to Corso, it was radars that got in the way of these two, not one, two flying saucers over Roswell that, that caused the crash. It broke up the navigational envelope. They lost the ability to navigate. I mean, of course, the big thing was these people were not that far advanced from us. It's not as though you're dealing with people thousands of years in the future that come to Earth with powers. No, no, no. He said they, they screw up. They make mistakes. Stan said the same thing. Stan and Friedman, they screw up. They, they crash. Yeah. We can bring them down. Um, so 
it was our targeting radars. The radars, there's two, the radar captures something, then pinpoints it, then targets it, and the missile follows the radar track. That was its turn with the navigational systems, their navigational systems. So we had a deal. Don't screw with their navigational systems. Turn your radars off. Somehow the folks at Red Canyon Radar Control, ATC or something, would know when saucers were in the vicinity and crossword get an order, turn them off. Well, Corso basically fudged on the order. He kind of waited maybe a couple of seconds before turning it off, <laughs> maybe turned it on a little too soon. That's when he saw these UFOs crisscrossing across the sky on radar. Obviously, if they knew... If they had that sort of uh, policy in the works, then there must have been some kind of... That was my logic. There was an understanding. Yeah. How about on an international front? Uh, now, we have a writer for our site, Richard. He's from Wales uh, in the U.K., and he wanted to know about uh, U.K. prime ministers, how much you think they know, and if they're sort of like... Is, if, if you think there's like an international sort of situation where, you know, uh, certain governments share information or, you know, there's an overlaying layer, I guess you could say, uh, of people in the know. Well, I would say that there is sharing of information, but also at a defense department level, it's also, let's put it this way, UFOs are a big pain in the butt, mm -hmm. okay? I mean, for governments. I, I keep saying this, and this is another thing that didn't get on the air, but UFOs are like serial killers. Everybody knows they're there. They're in plain sight, only nobody wants to deal with them because they're pains to deal with, Yeah. right? So let's take Arya Ventwaters, classic example. Of course, the British figured it was a UFO, right? But it was in an American air base. So their attitude was, let the Americans deal with it. What a pain. Let the Americans handle it. We don't want to handle this. We'll put it in our files. And, of course, the Americans didn't want to handle it. The commanding general for Charles Hall basically never even got back to him on it. Who cares? We don't want to know about this. In other words, since we can't do anything about it, why spend time? Why start a whole big UFO flap, which is going to be all over the news? What a pain. You know, it's just it's something you can't deal with. Why don't the Air Force want to get a Project Blue Book? God forbid they actually put out a real UFO story. Then the Air Force is in the UFO business. Yeah. They don't want to be in the UFO business. They want to be in the, I want as many taxpayer dollars as I can possibly have to be in the defense business, not yeah. the UFO business. Um, they tried to have shoot-downs with UFOs. In Frank Fraschino's book, Shoot Him Down, he talks about the Air Force fighting with UFOs in 1952. They lost. You know, why get in a fight you can't win? Yeah. I mean, they weren't commies, so why should we worry about it? I mean, really, that was the thought. They're not commies. They're not from Russia. So, fine, let them fly. We can't shoot them down. We don't want them to shoot us down. So let's just, you know, we'll keep track of them. We'll try and see what they're after. And, and you know, but then they then they shut down Nostrum Air Force Base. Then, uh, then they track our, our like, um, fighters and bombers across the country. I mean, those are all issues that we have to worry about, so we'll keep in files on it, but there's nothing we're really going to do. What are the files? Operation Blue Fly, Operation Moondust. And so that kind of segues actually into uh, the next sort of thing I was going to ask you about, and that's just this whole disclosure thing that, that everybody, uh, that not everybody, but there's a good portion of people that that's sort of their banner issue, and of course the exopolitics movement that's sprung up in the last uh since the turn of the century, I guess you could say. Um, what are your thoughts on that whole thing? Because it sounds like you don't think that disclosure is a possibility. No, I really don't. I just don't see it. I, I see, I see. I mean, I, I res look, I respect Steve Bassett. I respect what he's doing. Respect the fact that he actually ran for Congress. He actually ran for Congress in the very district where the Beltway shooters 
were shooting at people. So there he is standing on a sidewalk talking about UFOs and congressional campaigns and bullets are whizzing around his head. So you yeah. gotta, so you gotta, you know, feel happy about that. Grant Cameron, great job. Presidential UFOs, fabulous, mm -hmm. fabulous. Does the government know about UFOs? Richard Dolan's book on the national security state. Again, I mean, he's a documentarian, he's a historian. Fine. This is, this is all good stuff. Um, Everything is in there. So so you really don't need the government to come clean. Why would Hillary Clinton go on camera? What's the purpose of disclosure? The CIA said from the outset, it's in their report. They wrote it. It's in their official history. Take that as gospel. They said that they like UFOs because UFOs help them cover up what they're really doing. And if somebody gets too close to the story, they'll make it derisive. Their plan was to leak. And this is what they did. I mean, it's brilliant. Again, it's, it's the whole serial killer business. Um, Ted Bundy, after he kills Georgette Hawkins and takes her body to the woods, decapitates her. After he takes her to the woods um, and kills her, what does he do? Does he go hiding under his bed in terror? Oh, the cops are after me. No. He he knows that they're probably looking for a car, so he rides his bike to the very murder site. He's missing one of the earrings from uh, that, that, he, uh, that he disposed of, so he figures that earring could still be at the site. The last thing he wants is some cop to find it. Rides his bike to the site, sees the cops covering the site, the missing woman, what's going to happen, who knows. He says to the cop, what happened? The cop says, oh, I, you know, we're doing a missing person's case. But he says to the cop, what's that over there? The cop turns around, he bends down, picks up the earring he's after, shoves it in his pocket, continues the conversation, hops on his bike and goes away. Huh. Case is not solved for another decade. Okay? So the point is UFOs are in play. I mean, the cop's looking at the killer. He doesn't know he's looking at the killer. Um, same thing. The last thing that, so the last thing you want to do is have to, you know, do a whole case on this. So it's, it's the same thing. Why would you why would you possibly want to open up this whole UFO flap? So what did the CIA do? We're going to take it one step further. They decide to release real UFO stories. Real stories. Mm -hmm. They make, what is the CIA? They make contact. First of all, the whole point of the CIA is infiltration of American institutions. Is it a bad thing? No, they learned it from the Soviet Union. By the way, who started the CIA? The Soviet Union. And it's, uh, the KGB got to Dulles. He didn't know they were KGB and said, you guys should have a, a real central agency for developing intelligence. You don't have it. That's why the Germans are so good. And Dulles said, hey, that's a great idea. It goes to Truman. And they get the National Security Act, which creates the CIA, right? Yeah. Who are the people who who are the people who went to Dulles? Kim Philby, all the people from the Cambridge K, uh, um, uh, KGB cell. So the CIA is started by the KGB. Brilliant. I can go on about this. They uh, they infiltrated us at every single level of government. The Chinese are doing it now. How we just sit for it? We just think it's great. McCarthy was a dupe. Everybody thought McCarthy was an idiot. Therefore, they turned away from what he was saying that was actually true. Not that I'm a big McCarthy fan, but still. So, so um, here's a case where the CIA, knowing how to infiltrate institutions, goes to all the major institutions, TV and film and newspapers, right? Yeah. And where do they leak the UFO stories to? Tabloids. Tabloids. A lot of the tabloid stuff is dead on true. They've gotten it from sources they can't mention. What did, what did Ted Koppel, in one of the most brilliant things Ted Koppel ever say, the guy from Nightline, the ABC News, um, right, on camera, editor, yeah, right, who's a Yale lawyer, what does he say? He says that the only truth you'll ever get from the media you'll find in the tabloids. That's what he says.
and he hosted Nightline. It's a quote. He gave it to this. Uh, he gave it to um, I think it was uh, the graduating class at some college in Boston. Maybe it's BU. Yeah. Anyway, that's what he says. It's true. Where does the CIA take its greatest stuff? To the tabloids. Why? Because nobody takes it seriously. It's Ted Bundy standing in front of the cop. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so, so that's what you get. It's it's unbelievable. Where else do they go? The science fiction film movie makers. I kind of think that it's maybe a generational sort of thing that as more. You know, as you know, more generations come along, and my generation—I'm only about thirty now. When uh, as my generation sort of grows up, and our kids sort of grow up, that eventually it'll be an accepted sort of fact that UFOs are real. And, and I think it's—I think that depending where you look, I mean, quite honestly, so so that when Steve and I argue about disclosure, I keep saying it's already been disclosed. Why are you beating a dead horse? In other words, there was a point during the Vietnam War. I, I, you know, and I guess this is a generational thing to answer your question. Yes, I mean, during the Vietnam War, there was an argument that we already won the Vietnam War. Let's just go. I mean, we could the same argument in Iraq. We won the war. Let's get out of here. Where were you in Iraq? We won it already. Yeah. Oh, there's a terrorist. What's up to the Iraqis to fight? Why should we fight their war? We won. We went there in 2003. Mission accomplished. George Bush was right. Great job. We won. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. They, you know. It's your country. If you can take it, can't take it, don't look at us. I mean, we won your war. We got rid of Saddam Hussein. He's dead. Have a nice day. We won. Same thing with Vietnam. We beat the communists. We won. Get out. You can't fight yeah. your own war. Mm -hmm. Don't look at us. We, we can't stay there forever. Yeah. We won. What we went out to do, we did. Right? Saddam Hussein is dead. Goodbye. Well, that was the argument in Vietnam. We won the war. The communists tried to do the big Tet Offensive. We beat the crap out of them. Goodbye. Let's get out of here now. It's 1968. We won. Hey, you guys in South Vietnam, you want your country? We'll go fight. Here, we'll give you all the equipment you need. Here it is. Goodbye. We're leaving. Well, that was the argument. Well, I have to say Margaret for disclosure. It's already been disclosed. Case closed. Over. Goodbye. Why beat the dead horse? Why try to get somebody in Congress to say there are UFOs? What's yeah. the point? It doesn't matter. We know there are UFOs. We have all the documentary evidence. Yeah, read Dolan, read Corso, read, you know, it's all there. Read all the documents. Read the Cliff Stone book on the documents. Everything you need is there. You don't need anybody to tell you the documents are real. You know they're real. Okay, what are the woods? Read Ryan Woods. Talk to Jesse Marcel. He was a living witness. I mean, you know it's real. You don't need, and the debunkers, who cares? The hell with them. Yeah. What are they debunking anyway? There's nothing to debunk. Why create things like ufology, which is a non-science? Why come up with these wacky standards that only you like? Why worry about it? All the truth you need is there. Disclosure has happened. It probably happened 60 years ago, but certainly it's happening. It's happened now. There it is. It's done. Don't worry about it. Has the government admitted there are UFOs? Yeah, read the tabloids. There's your disclosure. It's in the tabloids. Look at uh, look at Earth versus the flying saucers, invaders from Mars. All there, is, there's a grain of truth. Mm -hmm. All right. So you think sort of like this political tact is not really the best method of uh, going about it? Why waste the time and energy and that sort of thing? It's a job. I mean, I think it's great. It's a job. Keep the pressure on. But I mean, you're keeping the pressure on something that's already taken place. Yeah. And now the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, and. Um, and we kind of talked about this off the air, but I guess I, I kind of have a feel like I have a responsibility, I guess, to respond in mm -hmm. a way. And that's uh, your post from the UFO Magazine blog um, was kind of anti-podcast and stuff like that. And I, I agree with you in the sense you said, you know, a podcast is only a podcast because someone got the right equipment, which I agree with. 
the field of podcasting in the esoteric realm has become just oversaturated. Um, and I've been doing this for like four years now. So when I first started, uh, it was kind of novel. But now it seems like everybody's doing it. But you seem a little vehemently anti-podcast, and I want to make sure that's not the case. Or I want to just sort of uh, have you flesh that out a little bit about your point. Because I do agree with you that there is sort of a clickiness right now in the online esoteric world, podcast or not. Um, it seems like this, it's becoming very clicky in the last six months to a year at least. Um, and I wanted to sort of talk to you about that. Okay, well, there's a bigger picture and a smaller picture, and okay. a really smaller picture. The, uh, the bigger picture is that broadcasting no longer exists as we understand broadcasting. It's become narrow casting or thin casting. And basically, I mean, I have to tell you, What's happening in the world of podcasts, you see the repercussions of that on the Internet, and you see the repercussions happening in why do you think the WGA struck? Why do you think a SAG is going out? It's because broadcasting is changing. And this whole television itself is being transformed and radio is being transformed by the Internet. And so there's an economic thing to it. And you just, I mean, as new technologies develop, these new technologies have economic repercussions on older technologies. So that's the one thing. So I'm very kind of sensitive to podcasting without being pro or con, just sensitive to podcasting, knowing what it's doing to um, – knowing what the technology is doing to television and radio and, uh, in some cases, motion pictures. Okay? I appreciate that. That's one. Two, when you go on – traditional television, whether it's a cable channel like History or, or, or A&E, or whether you are on Cap Cities, Channel 7, there is a level of professional review, okay, that says, okay, you are worthy to be on TV. It's not like you are the character in the movie Network where you can go off on your own and there are great ratings and you've got Faye Dunaway saying, kill the guy on camera the Patty Chayefsky movie, um, there's a level of review, okay? Just like publishing. Same, here's the same model. Yeah. Once you have print on demand, and once you've got um, vanity presses, you could write a whole, you could write a hundred thousand words that say, um, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, write him a check for ten thousand dollars, and you've got your book. Now you're published. Yeah. Okay? Yet, to get past the review process, as onerous as it is, of a professional publishing house, it's a backbreaker. Just like to get past the review of making a movie, you can make a movie, get a handy cam, get even a, a broadcast quality movie camera for 2500 bucks, right? Mm -hmm. Get out there, make a movie. It's, here's the movie of my dog. <laughs> Who are we talking about now? But here's the movie of my dog and the universe. Uh, you do it. And um, dog, God, dog, God, same thing. Okay, you do it, and you've got a movie. Okay? Yeah. Now, any one of – you've got a Mac? Great. Hi, Mac. Edit my movie. Do I movie? Make a little edited version of your movie. So far, you, what are you spending? 5000 bucks. Got a movie. Now, digitize the thing. Put it on the Internet. Go to PayPal. Get a site. Here's my movie. Download it. Click, click. Ten bucks. Download a movie. Yeah. How hard is that? I mean, it's hard. I mean, not every person you know living under a bridge can do it, but the fact is you can still do it. Okay. That's transformed the industry, if you want to know the truth. Because now you've got these, these special niche market DVD movies, internet movies, special 
market podcasts competing with, and you can listen to them anytime, right? And you've got TiVo, so you can basically, you could just basically sit in a room, have your own chocolate-covered strawberries, never go out, and basically do podcasting and TiVo the whole day long, and, and that's your life. Well, again, that's fine. I, I'm not an anti-technology person. I think it's great. Um, when my dispute with that podcasting group is when they suddenly declare we are the Taliban. Ours is the only truth. And if you're on the air and want to say this is my only truth, fine. It happens not to be my truth. It's your truth. Have a nice day. We don't have to fight. You can criticize me all you want to. But when they start going on the air and in the podcast are tearing people up because they don't, and, 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 and because they don't conform to their levels of what is true. And the fact is, this is ufology where nothing is true. Yeah. And so that's my gripe. And that was the whole blog. It was listening to some of these things and saying, oh, we're the tellers of the truth. Who made you the tellers of the truth? What are you, the Messiah? I mean, did somebody come down and say to you, oh, you're, you're, uh, uh, you have the truth? No. And I, by the way, I know the backstories of the people who were saying this, and the backstories are crazier than Billy Meyer. So please, you know, don't tell me that, you know, you're the truth, because you're not. You have a truth, and it's your truth. Have a nice day. Want to cut up people? Have a nice day. But don't say you can be in the field and you can't be in the field. Yeah. You know, nobody made you the refs, okay? So so that's my gripe. And the magazine takes totally opposite tack. Our door is open. The whole thing with UFO magazine is we want to be the big tent. We want to be the place where anybody can come and tell a story. Why? Because it's the people who tell the story that are important. Exactly. And and that's why you and I have no gripe, because I want to see a lot of different people in the tent. I want a big tent, because it's not to me to, to, to winnow out. It's to say it is the pressure of all these stories that breaks down the door to the mainstream, not the one story that seeps under the door crack. Exactly, yeah. Thank you so much for saying what needed to be said. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Woo! Like I said when we talked off the air before we even started the interview, you know, I just had to clear the air because as a podcaster and as one of the people who's been doing this for a while, you know, it's disappointing when that situation comes up is the best way to put it. You know, I, I, I've heard of these other shows. I don't listen to uh, any other podcast to tell you the truth. I'm just too busy. But, you know, you hear about sort of this us or them attitude that's that's out there, and it's it's just uh, unfortunate. It's true, and, and then everybody wants to be, everybody wants to be coast to coast. Everybody wants to be Steven Spielberg. You know what? I, I have to tell you, in defense of coast to coast, now, the disclaimer is that George and I are writing partners, and we've known each other for, year, for like well over a decade, okay? So that's first of all. So, so this is not, you know, I'm not a a, a, a private party. George and I are friends. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, the work that George does on Coast to Coast is backbreaking work. I mean, you think somehow, you think somehow that it's like, oh, it's so easy, you go on, you're this and that. It's, I'll tell you, the people who are criticizing George can't even come near to the kind of research he does. I mean, it is really tough work to do. And I've been with him before a broadcast, and I know the hard work he does. And it's basically really hard work. And the fact is, Coast to Coast is a commercial broadcast. It's not his job, nor should it be his job to say, oh, you're not real, you're real, you're not real, you're And he doesn't do that. Exactly. Okay? He's got an interview style, which basically is, if you've got a great story to tell, I want my listeners to hear it. Whether it's a ghost story, a, um, a past live story, that's what I want to do. 
And so that's what George does. And he is very, I'll tell you something, he's very, very good at it. There are a few people. There are different styles. George has one style. Art has another style. Ian Putter has another style. George Knapp has another style. There's styles. There are approaches to being a talk show host. The fact is George Norrie is not the nation's most listened to nighttime talk show host in the top five, I think, just because um, there's nobody else on the air. That's not true. And so anyway, that and look, even the, the fathers of the movement, and one of the fathers was Long John Nebel. Mm -hmm. Long John Nebel adamantly did not believe in UFOs. Okay, Barry Farber and I were on the air talking about this. He did not believe in UFOs. Not in the jot. Yet his wife, Candy Jones, was a victim of MK Ultra and was set up to be an assassin long before he met her. And this, like Manchurian candidate stuff, was coming out of her brain while they were married. So he's living this double life, right? But Long John entertained all kinds of people. Yeah. He was a great host. Well, Art is in the model of Long John. George does a nighttime talk show host about <clears throat> serendipitous things. And he's good at what he does. So, um, but that's professional level broadcasting, okay? Um, if you know what it means to make a movie, it is next to impossible. I've been in motion pictures. It is next to impossible to do, okay? The fact that Spielberg can do this, it's not easy. It's not that he waves his hand and magically, you know, zap, there's a movie. It is backbreaking. If you've never been, and I have been, on a 20-hour shoot, and you are the walking wounded, and all you want is a place to fall face down and not be stirred, but you've got to get up two hours later for another for another take. Yeah. Um, it's back-breaking, onerous, hard, mental, and physical work. The fact that Spielberg can do this, and other directors can do this, is an unbelievable testament to their abilities. So everybody wants to be a Spielberg. Everybody wants to be a George Norrie. Everybody wants to be an Art Bell. You know what? It's not going to happen. So don't sit there and, like, gnash your teeth. No voice out of the heavens will anoint you. The fact is that to be that, – that George was doing – when he was a kid, I mean, he was a young guy. He was doing television production work out of Detroit all the way back. In fact, he was the one who pointed the finger and got the network to cover uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, wow. Right. Okay, that was George's story. So um, he's a news picker. Yeah. Okay. And that's a special talent. Um, Spielberg, as a kid, was getting onto the Paramount lot and, and like pretending he was um, a director. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the dedication it takes. So please don't tell me it's going to happen to you automatically or that, or, or, or that I'm a bad guy because I don't pick you to be in UFO Hunters. I mean, come on. <laughs> Has that happened? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's uh, kind of like what we were talking about, that there's an attitude, and uh, I, I've kind of befallen that. I've been the victim, I guess you could say, of that in a lot of ways, and I'm sure you have with UFO Magazine when we talked about this, that that us in the esoteric media – some people want to assign us the responsibility of acting as the gatekeeper when that's not our job. No, that is not the job. Absolutely not the gatekeeper. In fact, the worst thing you want to be, the minute you see yourself as a gatekeeper, that's when you should retire or get another job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I get the emails all the time about why would you have this person on or you should, you know, and people criticize me in, in various places on the Internet. It's like, come on, dude, it's my show. I'm just going to bring on who, who will entertain me and entertain my audience. Right. You, you, really, you really can't be a gatekeeper. I mean, and, 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 like, don't even think for a minute. That uh, that that's that's your job, or that somehow you've got some like divine, like you've been, uh, you have some divine bestowed endowment 
that you are the other the person who is going to define what's true or not. And and when I hear this on the air, that's my gripe with podcasters, that somehow they define the truth. And it's like, things should always be, in my opinion, blank, fine, it's in your opinion, have a nice day. But this thing about somehow you're the truth just is just wrong. It's just wrongheadedness. And the people who, by the way, define it are the ones with the least experience in the field. Or the experience in the field is very limited. Yeah. Or the experience in the field is defined by a personal contact experience. I mean, it's just it's just not the way it works. Now you've been around for a while. Is this sort of thing cyclical? Is it going to burn out after they you know they beat their head against the wall and try and? Happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, happens all the time. You just got to kind of ignore it, I guess. You got to ignore it. I mean, you just you just you, you just got to completely ignore it. I mean, it's just it's it's just you've set it aside because it's it's um. It's not cyclical, okay? I mean, you've, you've got people like, I'm going to mention names, but you've got people who basically um, uh, sit on the sidelines and just, see, UFOs and paranormals are so challenging to certain people, and it's not because it is challenging them from the perspective of, oh, um, it, you're challenging my reality. It, it's, it's more, why do you have the story and I don't? So my attitude's going to be, I'm going to debunk your story. You're wrong, and the attacks are always personal. Yeah. They're all ad hominem attacks. Mm -hmm. And so you see so much jealousy in the field because it's a non-field. Yeah, and everybody wants to be the one that breaks the story. Yeah, I mean, it's a non-field. And everybody knows, everybody believes that if you have the real UFO stuff, and I do, if you have the real UFO stuff, you're going to make a million dollars. You're not. <laughs> okay? I mean, I'm, if I, we've bumped into people, both in UFO hunters, both in books that I've written, both in, in UFO magazine, that basically say, sure, it's a million dollars for my picture. Well, you know what? No. Okay? Yeah. If you have a real picture, that's great. There are tons of real pictures. They're great. You know? And that's the whole business of basically checkbook journalism in ufology. You go to a place and you find all these people are divvying up their witnesses. I control these witnesses. I control these witnesses. I control these witnesses. I control these photos. And the fact is, Corso was right. You don't have to have a government cover-up. The ufologists cover it up themselves. Yeah, exactly. Because they just don't want to work together or anything like that. It's a, it's a turf war. It's a turf war. So because it's a turf war, you'll, you'll never get the truth. The truth is in the National Enquirer. That's what the truth is. And it's there for anybody to see. Okay? Just got to, you know, take the blondes off it, take the Marilyn Monroe stories off it, which, by the way, most of that is true anyway. And um, you just, you just, you just got to peel away various levels. But there's a core truth. Nice. Now, another sort of big picture issue that we discuss on a lot on the show, and, and I'm sure you have some perspective on this because your wife's a big player in the UFO field, and that seems to be the women in ufology. Um, it's a it's a small group, which is unfortunate, and and sort of I've always kind of wondered why that is. And in all of America, we have a lot of uh, female writers at the website, and actually two of them write for UFO magazine, so we're sort of interconnected on that. Why do you think there's so few women in ufology or women of prominence, I guess you could say, in ufology? On the one hand, it, um, up until, I would say, the late 90s, it really wasn't a big issue for women. I mean, it was really kind of men's toys. Yeah. You know, it's like techno-porn, UFOs and military. But, I mean, the, I think the presence of women in the media and the presence of women in the military has made a big difference. The presence, uh, uh, the, uh, the presence of women in military slash civilian government institutions has made a big, like Donna Hare at NASA, for example. Um, so on the one hand, yes. On the, on, on the other hand, when you're talking about the nuts and bolts, UFO toys, a lot of the old hand UFO people, there just weren't many women in 
around. I mean, who are the women at the 509th and Roswell? Who are at Walker Field? Who are the women in the Air Force? Who are the women in the 50s and the 60s? They just weren't there. Mm -hmm. um, it really isn't until the 70s and 80s and 90s you get there. And then, and, and then basically, um, it, it, it's tough. I mean, I've got my own. I, look, being married to an Ivy League graduate, you, you really know see what the frustration is when there's a glass ceiling, yeah. right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, it's funny, I'm very sensitive to it in this election campaign because I see the frustration that the, the Obama campaign, the McCain campaign, the other, the Edwards campaign, they, they, Hillary Clinton is the enemy. She is the devil. Why? Because she's Her a position, woman. Because she's a woman. I mean, and, and yet, Obama's wife, Michelle Obama, went to Princeton, went to Harvard, Hillary went to Yale, went to Wellesley. I mean, they're both Ivy, they're both Ivy League women. Why would she hate Hillary so much? Which she does. The point is that here's a case where even women hate women. It's amazing, like self-hating women. Yeah. Um, Nancy Pelosi is carving herself out her own, I mean, instead of, instead of saying, let's get the strongest ticket, I mean, I happen to be a Hillary supporter only because um, I, I like Bill. I think Bill Clinton's a genius. I think she and I like her health plan. Basically, that's it. I mean, other, everybody's getting out of Iraq. Okay, we're not going to be in Iraq forever. Everybody's getting it. There's no difference. Barack will get us out next week. Hillary will get us out in a month. John McCain maybe next year. Everybody's getting out of Iraq. Stupid war to get into. We were ambushed in Iraq. We fell for a line from the Iranians. I mean, when you look at the story, it's the Iranians that fed us false intelligence to get us into Iraq so that we get bogged down and ambushed. That's why we're there. Yeah. Okay? They want, we did their job. Okay? If you look at it strategically, Saddam Hussein was our best friend. Why he kept Ahmadinejad in check. Yeah. That was his job. It was a great job. Leave him alone. Let him sit there. You know, he's doing a great job. It's not going to be a war. He's there. That's the guy you want. He's like Noriega. You want the guy there. What did we do? Stupid. We, we kicked him out. Now we opened the floodgates. So now we got a problem. Didn't have a problem before 2003. Now we got a problem. Mm -hmm. So, so um, bad, bad strategy. Okay. But, but we're there now. Everybody's going to get us out of Iraq. Okay. That's going to happen. So that's, I don't think it's an issue any longer. I think, I, or a major issue. I think the big issue is the economy and health. So, I mean, I'm, I know I'm off on a sidetrack, but the point is women have this added burden now that you really can't be pushy, you can't be aggressive, you can't be anything that's not womanly. Even now in 2008, that's an issue. Yeah. So I think you see that same issue with women in ufology. I think I, I and 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 it's wrong because they're because women journalists, female journalists are important. But that's I mean I'm serious. You should you wouldn't believe the letters Nancy gets from people. Yeah. I know that Bill is busy. I mean here's a person who's doing single-handedly an entire magazine, mm -hmm. right? Which is an awful lot of work. I mean, yeah. it's an unbelievable amount of work. And yet you'll have these crusty types saying, well, your husband's busy, so why don't you handle this for me? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Insulting. Yeah. Right? It's like Hillary Clinton is doing a campaign stop and somebody hangs up a sign saying, my shirts need ironing. Exactly, yeah. I mean, are you just? it just makes you so mad. And there's a debate, and you see these guys, Edwards and Obama, ganging up on her. I mean... She's the only person with a health plan. As I said, standing fire is critical for me. That's my – somebody stands fire. You know, you go all the way back to 1998, uh, 1993, 94, 95. You see this person standing with all these nasty old crusty senators. You're a first lady. What are you doing sitting here with a health plan? Phenomenally insulting. Yeah. 
right? And then, and then in the parry and thrust of that verbal dueling, she, she basically scores these hits. And these people say, well, you're really a rough person to deal with. So, you know, instead of saying, okay, well, you made a point, it's, well, you're a woman, so you're tough to deal with. Yeah, exactly. But I think it's getting better, I'll say that, in ufology. It seems like it's getting better. There's more women emerging, I think, out of the ether uh, to become prominent ufologists. Right. I mean, I respect the Linda Moulton Howes, the Paula Harris's um, of the world. I really do. Um, I respect the fact that Angela joined it down in Stevensville, uh, Stevensville, Texas, who basically got into a tiff with us. But I, I, I respect what she did. She was a writer. She, she covered the Stevensville story. She was very courageous in covering the story about UFOs. Her bosses didn't want her to do it. Um, I, I know the whole story because I was inside the story. It's how I know it. We were in Stephenville, so I knew all the players down there. She, she, she covered the story. She did a great job, um, but her bosses didn't want her to cover the story. They wanted her to cover something else. She refused. They had a tiff, and um, so she's. But I mean, she's now working back in newspapers again. But uh, it, it was her coverage of the story that got to another woman, who was the AP reporter in Dallas, and she put it on the news wires, and that's what. Turn Stephenville hot. Um, so, I mean, I understand that. It takes a lot of courage to be a woman in the field because um, it's an oddball field. It is a field dominated by men. And they're pompous guys, too. A lot of these guys are simply just difficult to deal with because they've got egos at stake. Yeah. So, and they don't want to be challenged by a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bit of an old boys club as well, which is also the part of the problem. Right. Exactly. And, and and sort of on that note, I guess, in a way, is uh, the other big pillar that we like to talk about here on the show, and that's young people in ufology. Uh, like I said, I'm only 30. I started oh, almost 30. Um, I started this maybe uh, four years ago, five years ago, so I got it in when I was about 25. But it seems like there's a, lot, a lack of young people with an interest in ufology or at least an active interest in, in the field. Um, why do you think that is, and, and what can we do to help fix that? Well, on the one hand, to help fix that, there's nothing really you can do. I mean, there is no field of ufology, so there's nothing really to get into. Um, a lot of the original people in the field were there from the very beginning, from the 1940s and 50s or from the 60s and 70s, doing stories about ufology. I mean, that's really how they got into it. Um, this is a field that's kind of still, for the most part, governed by such as it is, okay, governed by its founders, yeah. by the Stan Friedmans, the Kevin Randalls, the, the people who really were there at the outset, who who broke the big stories. There aren't that many big stories to break anymore. I mean, quite frankly, the stories are out every day. Um, the people who are breaking them are not in the field of ufology. Angela Joyner wasn't a ufologist, but she helped break the Stephenville story. Um, John Hilkovich wasn't a ufologist in Chicago, but he broke the O'Hare story. So the field is now more diverse and diffuse in terms of people covering stories. Ufology is basically a journalistic field, and um, so you really got to be want to be a journalist because uh, that's what you are if you want to get into the field of talking about ufology. But you do have people that are doing great work in the field. I mean, you're doing great work in the field uh, with a podcast and with your own research. Look at John Greenwald, who was a teenager, amassed the Black Vault, became a television producer. Um, you've got Jeremy Vaney, who started with his own um, subjective visions of what happened to him, and, and now he's in the field. But, I mean, so these are three – you're three people in the field. You're young. Uh, the danger is – having a generational battle. Well, we're young, you're old, you get out. Well, yeah. that, that's not the case. The case is you do your research, older people do their research. I guess I'm in that generation. Older people do their research. And um, we'll see the stories as they come out. I mean, so there really, I don't think it really is a youth versus age issue. I think that's a non-issue 
that's an issue among gaining prominence in the field. You see somebody writing a best-selling book, somebody really breaking through the kind of uh, surface tension of, of, of the media, that's really all it takes. Yeah, well, I, I don't think there's any sort of generational battle. That wasn't really what I was getting at. And I, it's important, uh, at least on this show, um, we, I love having the, the classic ufologists, I guess we'll say, on the show, because mm -hmm. that way uh, they have more insight into what was going on back then before I got involved, and, and we can really learn more about the history of the field. Like, we had Brad Steiger on and, and really just talked for about three hours just about the scene back then and what it was like. You know, you can't get that perspective on from somebody who's just been in this for like three years or something like that. Right. And the other sort of, uh, I guess you could say, interest group uh, that, that doesn't seem to have a place in ufology, and that's people of color. It seems like it's a very white field, um, and with some Latin people, you know, like the Scott Corrales's and the Jaime Massons and stuff like oh, that. Oh, Jaime Masson, uh, Ruben Uriarte, Noe Torres. Um, I mean, you have, uh, then there's, remember, there are a lot of Latin people in the field, a lot of Hispanics in the field. Um, the the huge UFO movement uh, in Mexico. But I don't mean Latins. I was excluding them from the, okay. the question. Um, but I mean, like, I don't want African Americans is the term I guess we would mm -hmm. use. In America, um, it seems like it's a predominantly white field in America. Why do you think that is? Uh, the, the simple answer is I don't know. Um, and that's true. That's I mean, <laughs> for, uh, for me, probably one of the most prominent um, African-American authors in the field is Harold Burke, who wrote the book Flying Sorcerers 101. Major, major um, uh, uh, MUFON person. He's the official greeter down from MUFON, San Diego, Orange County. Um, he is an investigator in his own right. He is an amalgamator of information. Um, we did a book together for Warner a few years ago called um, uh, Unsolved UFO Mysteries. Harold was in the movie with uh, made by Philippe Mora called Occam's Razor. Um, but I mean, uh, we interviewed uh, Terrell Copeland down in Suffolk, Virginia, who is an experiencer um, and was very cautious about coming out about his experiences. He put his videos up on the web, but boy, I'll tell you, to get to that story of his experience in alien contact what took took a lot of back and forth took a lot of conversation took a lot of trust uh to do that and and um so um and then of course in the book that i'm doing now with george nori called journeys to the light which is coming out from tour next year mm -hmm. from mcmillan next year we have a lot of african-american experiences talking about their ufo contact okay. so in some cases it's a case of and eh, you really want to go public with a story uh, in other cases, um, you're dealing with, it's more, I think, of a generational issue than it is a racial issue. Um, when we spoke with Terrell uh, down in Virginia, his, his father was, I mean, accepting, but on the other hand, very skeptical. Yeah. His mother did not want to talk about the fact that Terrell had seen, and this was not on the show. This is what I mean by you're going to cull things from the show to get to 47 minutes. Mm -hmm. That Terrell was not only born close to death, okay, yeah. but that when he was a kid, he was having UFO contact, visits with extraterrestrials, little people in his room. He'd run into his mother's room. We never covered his telekinesis abilities, his telekinetic abilities, his psychokinetic abilities, his um, extrasensory abilities. None of that was in the interview. Yeah. Think of how strong that would have made that interview. But we didn't have the time to do that and get Terrell to Mass General along with Michael Lee Hill for the blood tests. D 
frustrating. Love to do a double episode. Maybe we'll revisit it this year. Yeah. But there you go. And that was an unbelievable example of somebody, there is not one iota of difference between Terrell Copeland, who's African-American, and Michael Lee Hill, who's, who's Caucasian, same experiences. I mean, what's also not on camera is when Terrell told his experiences to Michael Lee, Michael Lee was crying. He was so happy to meet somebody who had the same experiences. We didn't have time to get to the Barbara Wawa moment. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, all right. It's a tough issue to sort of get a handle on, but it does seem kind of strange, I guess you could say. But maybe I'll have this guy uh, that you're talking about from San Diego on the show. Absolutely. Get a hold of Harold Bird. He is fantastic. He lives down in uh, Southern California. He's a great interview. He'll talk about uh, his experiences, mm-hmm. um, his knowledge of, of, of what's on the other side, of the people he's spoken to, of the fact that when he travels around the country, he's a sales rep. When he travels, he's a sales manager, a trainer manager. Yeah. When he travels around the country, uh, he'll wear his Flying Sources 101 UFO magazine shirt. People will stop him on the plane. He's, he's, a, he's a guy you want to talk to, by the way. That's Harold Bird. He's very funny. He's a very, um, he's my age. He's a real trusting guy, but he's very open. So you want to just, you know, you see his face and you want to talk to him. Yeah. Okay, that's Harold Bird. And um, so people will, he'll, he will tell us, people will stop him in an airport and say, oh, flying saucers, I had an experience when I was five. And Harold will get these stories. He's like a magnet for these UFO stories. People confide stories in him. They will not tell their parents, their wives, their kids. Yeah. Um, and, and just to jump back to the young people in ufology, one point I did want to make in, in a way is that your show is doing a good job of sort of bringing UFOs and, and ufology to those people in a way. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, without that media coverage and without that sort of thing, these kids may not even notice it. Well, that's part of the pressure we're trying to exert. I mean, the, the point is now, the funny part is History Channel has an older demographic. Yeah. Okay, sci-fi has a younger demographic. So you've got the two. And by the way, you should know that there is a, that award does go on between sci-fi folks, let's say Trekkies, space war types. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Star War types, and ufologists. Yeah. They don't like each other. Yeah, I know. It's strange. I've noticed that. Uh, you, go to a, you go to a UFO convention, you will not see Trekkies. Go to a Star, uh, Star Trek convention, you will not see ufologists. Um, one of the great science fiction writers who wrote for Star Trek and Outer Limits, Harlan Ellison, will not, we, I was on the air with him on the old Kevin Nealon show, he will not, he thinks UFOs are just a big delusion, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a real difference. And yet, I fully believe, and I believe this, from people who've told me that he was in the know, okay? That there are aliens on Earth, they look like us, they are us. Um, I know I sound like a real conspiracy Flame out. But that's 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 you know that's Walt Andrus founded UFON. That's his position, and I agree with it. Among the folks who've told me that they stop, look, I've seen a UFO. I've seen an ET in a in believe it or not in a Ralph's in Southern California. Walked up to her, looked her, and said, "Hi, I'm Bill Burns of UFO Magazine. I want to know." And she said, "Yes," and walked away. Wow. How do you know that she was an alien? I by how she looked. So. um there are people who look really odd, and you just got the guts to walk up and say, "Okay, look." And she said, "Yes," and just walked away. You sure, she wasn't really a man. Wasn't that uh, no, I'm just teasing you. I don't think so. <laughs> so um, anyway, part of what's going on is that I think that one of the people who knew was Isaac Asimov, and I think Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy 
which form the nexus of like a five, six volume series of Foundation and Earth, Prelude to Foundation, etc. Earth and robots and stuff. Mm -hmm. That is the truth. Yeah. If you read Foundation, you'll probably get the truth, the Foundation trilogy. But um, one of the things that we – so you've got this thing of young people love sci-fi. That's great. They're not fans of ufology. Uh, but on the other hand, um, part of the thing we want to do in UFO Hunters is kind of exert enough pressure that we get – Real UFO, real UFO stories out into the public, and so the fact that we're hitting a younger demographic with it is great. Uh, I love it. I love the fighting that goes on with people. Like I, you know, my father said, you know, I believe, and there you are. So that's great. It's 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 getting the story out there into the mass media. It's kind of really, <clears throat> believe it or not, um, my kind of theory in this about dissemination of information <clears throat> is that the master of this was Paul of Tarsus, who, when the time came to convert the Greeks, very tough thing to do, converting the Athenians, mm -hmm. that whole pantheon. So Paul of Tarsus, I mean, he was Saul of Tarsus, now he's Paul of Tarsus. Um, he, goes to, he goes to the altar of the unknown god in Athens. And instead of saying, all your gods, Zeus, Aphrodite, get out of the pool, I'm here to talk about the one God. Yeah. Instead of doing that, he says, I'm here to talk about the unknown God. People say, oh, the unknown God, that's interesting. And he begins talking about the unknown God. And he begins talking about the Holy Trinity and the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. And before it's over, he's converting the Athenians to the tomb of the unknown God. Well, the fact is, it's <clears throat> Paul was a master salesman. And he was, and, and, and kind of, that's kind of the mission. You don't kind of say everything you know is wrong. You say, here's something you don't know. And that's the point of the show, to reach out to a newer market and say, here's something you don't know. That makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And I was concerned when the show first came on just because of the, I guess you could say the ghost hunterification. That's a phrase I just made up. Um, just the way once ghost hunters became popular, then all of a sudden it was kind of, crazy and all these little groups sort of sprung up but i'm like i'm glad to see that that sort of thing hasn't happened um with the ufo field it's already crazy enough as it is well the, the difference is our show is also about history it's on the history channel and it's about history so the point is we're dealing with current cases but we're dealing with aurora in the stephenville episode we're dealing with Maury Island in 1947. You're dealing with 1980s history in, in Bent Waters. And you're dealing with the UFO invasion over Edwards Air Force Base, which was 1965 during the Cold War. And so you're putting this in a context of history as well as currency. So it's about history. Yeah. Where do you see the UFO field going, I guess you'd say, in the next five, ten years? I mean, you've seen the Internet explode and now this, uh, you know, the, the podcasting boom and the blogging thing and everything like that. And it's sort of uh, become a little more uh, splintered off and all that stuff. But where do you see things going as, as someone who has a keen eye for the media and stuff like that? Where do you see UFO world going? Well, uh, the big um, shock to the media world was in uh, January of 2007 with the O'Hare Airport story in the Chicago Tribune because suddenly you had a story in which there was a UFO sighting. It was, an, it, was an, it was like months earlier, but lo and behold, the UFO sighting. Here's a case where, wow, the site took a million hits. When Larry King does a UFO show, you think Larry King is a true believer? No, he knows that when he does UFO shows, he gets really high ratings. So Stephenville. It was the biggest hits the Empire Tribune had in Stephenville they ever had. AP was getting hits in its wires. 
that's what's driving the new direction of ufology. It's suddenly there are people out there who who really want to read stories. I don't want to go to the old dog and pony show. Oh, when Roper did a poll, when Gallup did a poll, fine, that's old history. For me, the new history is eyes and legs. UFO stories have legs when they break through the surface tension of the media, and there's some corroboration in a real world of the UFO story. That's what happens. What's well, great news? That's the direction of ufology. The pressure from the mainstream media to talk about stories, they may laugh, you may get the same CNN hostess, right, news anchor, who will make a joke about, I bet they're saying little green men too, John. Yeah, ha-ha, Dolores. And that's the end of that, right? Yeah. You'll see that. But you know that there's a filter that a lot of people have, and they just filter it out. People get mad, but that, you know, phooey. They have to say that, give them their due, because otherwise they'll be burned as witches. So you just leave it alone. But the fact is, more and more media stories and more and more people are stepping out. Glenn Beck is talking about UFOs. He may laugh about it, but he's talking about it. It's on Fox News. Geraldo, I was on Geraldo three weeks ago, four weeks ago, talking about the Phoenix sightings. Mm -hmm. They are having these stories. I mean, Geraldo's attitude was not, you guys are nuts. When I he asked me, what do you think about the flare story? I said, you know, the thing with the flare story is, that, first of all, there's no disconnect between flares and UFOs. Somebody could have said, oh, flares, right? Yeah. That's not the issue. The issue is, were the UFOs they saw flares? Then, then they're not UFOs. Well, <clears throat> flares give off heat rather than light. So you look at through a camera, that's an infrared camera. It's picking up ambient temperature differences, right? Mm -hmm. What do you see? Do you see the balloon? Do you see smoke coming out from the flare? If you don't, it's probably not a flare. Geraldo said, fine, you're the expert. Let's leave it at that. No derisiveness. Yeah. So you think it's getting better in a sense. It, it is getting better. Dying out. Yeah, it's getting better. That's a good, uh, I guess that's a good note to end the whole thing on. Well, what's next for you? Uh, what do you have coming up? Obviously, you said uh, UFO Hunter Season 2. Season 2 begins. Season 2 begins filming in three weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got episodes all over the country, maybe in different countries. Um, I'm wrapping up now uh, my next book, which is Journey to the Light with George Nori. That's due out in early 2009. Uh, wrapping up a book with uh, Joel Martin on Call the Haunting of America, probably due out in 2010. Um, Space Wars that I wrote with Bill Scott and Mike Kamatos. That's an option for a motion picture. You know how long motion pictures take? Yeah. Uh, Day After Roswell, we're now doing that as a motion picture. I've got to, we've got to raise the financing for it, but we have a producer, director. I'm co-writing it with Philippe Mora. Um, so those were all projects that are ongoing, and we're looking at doing the uh, Corso story, an American who ruled Rome, with the same company that's doing Space Wars, and um, another book that I wrote, it, uh, it on. Uh, it's called Life in the Balance. So um, I didn't write, I'm sorry, that I represented, but that I sold to this motion picture company. There you go. And uh, what's the key, as ufomag.com, the key website you think we should mention here? Yeah, I, I, I think that the best website to go to for any information is www.ufomag.com. I think that's where all the activity is going to happen. We have a blog. Folks, come on the blog and make your comments. Contact our blog master, Leslie. 
uh, from the debris field. Yep, she also writes for Banal of America. So. She does. Contact her. Contact Nancy at webmaster at uh, ufomag.com if you want to blog and write. Um, submit your videos. Submit your photos. Go to um, the debris field. Go to uh, UFO hunting grounds. Um, there are a lot of different blog sites there. I think we're going to build that site out into a multi-conversion a media site. Nice, nice. Sounds good. Sounds good. Hopefully, uh, we'll, our paths will cross and, and, and uh, you know, the BOA franchise and the UFO magazine can work together a little further. That would be great. That would be fantastic. Definitely, definitely. Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and for giving us so much time. You've been just tremendously generous with your time. Um, you know, we planned for an hour and we've gone three here, so I'm sure there's going to be a two-part episode. But, like I said, with an A-list guest like you, I could just listen all day, and I'd, I'd like to let you just, just go with it, and, and then we dive into uh, off-the-side tangents, and, and you've been a great guest to interview in that regard. You're doing some great work with UFO Hunters. I'm just really impressed with the show. It's, it's one of the better shows out there, and, you know, you see so many shows, and sometimes you roll your eyes at them, but with your show, I'm, I'm really impressed with it and glad that it's out there and glad that the UFO scene is uh, getting some more coverage finally, thanks to you and... And, uh, you know, I could put over all your stuff all night here, but uh, I'll just leave it at thank you very much for coming on the show, and I look forward to seeing all your different projects uh, germinate into the future. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, it's really something uh, to be on your show because, uh, you know, though a lot of people listen to the show. It's a very popular podcast. As you say, you've been around for four years, so it's not just that you're here today and gone tomorrow. So, um, and, you, and you're doing great work, mainly getting a diversity of opinion, which uh, I think is great. And um, just, I'm happy to be here. Glad we could do it. Continued success to you. And um, thanks for having me. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Bill Burns for coming on the show and for giving us so much time. Bill says what's on his mind doesn't pull punches, and I appreciate and respect that. I hope we can have him on the program again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Until then, of course, you can find out more from Bill at the fantastic website www.ufomag.com ufomag.com as noted at the beginning definitely want to check out those ufomag blogs at ufomag.com presided over by the outstanding Leslie of BOA fame Leslie's doing a great job at the ufomag blogs and ufomag.com check it out Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. Kind of a funny one here this week, a little bit amusing to me. It comes from someone by the name of Rod. Here's what Rod has to say. Hello. Stumbled upon your website. Noticed the display you had stating, UFOs are real, get over it. As you should know, the term UFO only means unidentified flying object. As Carl Sagan stated, UFO doesn't automatically mean alien spaceship. Every time someone says, I saw a UFO, they think they saw a spaceship. To me, this shows an utter ignorance of cosmology. In keeping with Occam's razor, what people are probably seeing are our experimental military aircraft. Sincerely, Rod. There you go. Thanks for writing in, Rod. I did reply to Rod, and thankfully, after some explanation, he understood the joke that the t-shirts are supposed to be subversive, they're supposed to be satirical. Obviously, I know that UFO means unidentified flying object, and it does not mean spaceship. The point of the merchandise is to, you know, elicit some laughs, and thankfully Rod understood that, but I found it kind of amusing that someone would take offense to the UFOs are real, get over it statement on the shirt. 
but I suppose really wasn't that the whole point of putting it on the shirt, to sort of rile up the skeptics. For those folks who do dig the BOA merchandise, we've got some new stuff coming out probably by the end of the summer. We're going to go even more subversive, even more esoteric with some of our stuff. It's going to be pretty cool. I'm already sort of working on the drafts of the stuff, and we've got our resident artist, Circle Dancer, working on some early designs for the merchandise. So we'll probably have that stuff rolled out for you by the end of the summer, maybe to coincide with the launch of Season 4. Once again, thanks for writing in, Rod. I'm glad I could clear up your confusion over the UFOs are real, get over it t-shirts. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, you better move fast, because we only have three episodes left this season, and I will probably use the last listener feedback to wrap up the whole season three, so we've only got two more spots left for BOA Audio listener feedback. But if you want to get something into us, Here's how you do it. There's three ways. Either A, write to BOAaudio at hotmail.com. B, go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. Or C, join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Great place. Lots of awesome folks there hanging out talking about the paranormal and the not-so-paranormal. The US of E is like a little family, and we always open our arms to new members who join up and want to join in the hijinks. So check it out, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E dot com. Any of those three methods, the email, the contact, the forum, send me something that way, and it'll be thrown into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag, and maybe I'll pluck it out for one of those final two editions of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, the thanks portion of the show, let me run down the list of the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, new material from the great BOA staff. Top-notch columns looking at the world of esoterica from a number of different angles. We say it week in and week out. If you're only listening to the podcast series and you're not checking out the columns at BOA, you're making a serious mistake, my friends. Banallofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. As I just pointed out to you, we've got three episodes left here in Season 3. This was Episode 28. The bills are piling up here for the season, my friends, and as we wrap it up, i got to ask you to make some donations to keep the machine running and to get us on good footing going into Season 4. How do you make a donation? That's simple. You go to banallofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page at Banal of America and click the golden PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the donation process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards footing the bills for Banal of America and BOA Audio. Next week on the program, we're going to go in a whole different direction. We're going to be talking about the newly emerging field of after-death communication research with the man behind the genre, Bill Guggenheim. A lot of people don't know much about the ADC phenomena oftentimes gets lumped in with ghosts or mediumships or other weird paranormal areas, but Bill has collated and collected after-death communication and really synthesized it into something that 
people can finally start to wrap their minds around, and that's what we're going to be doing on the program next week. We're going to find out how Bill got interested in ADCs and decided to begin researching the phenomena. We'll be covering ADC experiences in depth, including precisely what they are, and a thorough examination of the 12 types of ADCs. We'll also find out the reaction to Bill's ADC research by other esoteric communities and how he answers the critics of ADCs, who claim that they are grief-induced hallucinations. And, of course, tons and tons more. It's a deeply personal edition of BOA Audio. It's an enlightening edition of the program. It's Bill Guggenheim. It's After Death Communications. It's next week on BOA Audio. And on that note, we wrap it up. Episode 28 in the books. Come on back next week, my friends, for episode 29 as we begin the closeout here of BOA Audio Season 3. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.